from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken, please. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Today we are talking about literature and design and television made with kids in mind that continues to enthrall and entertain us as adults. For instance, this season, if you're buying books for children, there's no reason they shouldn't also be enjoyable for parents and aunts and uncles and grandparents to read. That is the idea behind a terrific book by the journalist and critic Bruce Handy. I've known Bruce since we were practically kids ourselves. In the 80s, I hired him as an editor and writer at Spy magazine. His book, his first, is called Wild Things, The Joy of Reading Children's Literature as an Adult. It really came out of having kids and reading to the kids. And, you know, like a lot of families, we had this nice nighttime ritual. But I, I found that I was actually really getting interested in the, in the books in a kind of a critical slash intellectual or, you know, even just kind of emotional or entertaining way. Zoe and Isaac Handy and Kate and Lucy Anderson join us here in the studio later to talk about beloved kids' books. But first, Bruce and I, one-on-one. You, you talk of, uh, but in the book of this moment when you're reading out loud to your children. Well, you realize that they have this entirely different emotional resonance, the premise of your book. Yeah. Uh, talk about that. Yeah, the, when I was reading them, um, The House of Pooh Corner. Yes. But yeah, we get to the last chapter, and it, you know, it's never really made explicit, but you know, Christopher Robin is being sent off to boarding school. He's like, I don't know, however old, he's 10 or whatever you are when you sent off. And he, he, there's this just heart-wrenching scene where he has, you know, he sits down with Pooh and he's basically breaking up with Pooh and he's telling you, you know, Pooh, I, I can't see you anymore. And Pooh doesn't really, you know, Pooh just doesn't get it. Pooh, promise you won't forget about me, ever. Not even when I'm a hundred. Pooh thought for a little. How old shall I be then? Ninety-nine. Pooh nodded. I promise, he said. Still with his eyes on the world, Christopher Robin put out a hand and felt for Pooh's paw. Pooh, said Christopher Robin earnestly, if I, if I'm not quite, he stopped and tried again. Pooh, whatever happens, you will understand, won't you? Understand what? Oh, nothing. He laughed and jumped to his feet. Come on. Where, said Pooh. Anywhere, said Christopher Robin. Yeah, I mean, I was reading it to them. I was just, you know, like bawling. And it's clearly this whole thing about kind of leaving childhood behind. And I'm, I'm a, like, I have to confess that I'm a sucker for that. You know, it's like I, I still like if you played Puff the Magic Dragon, I would totally. I would get teary. I mean, that just, you know, they, I, that stuff kills me. And, and No, me too. This, it is the parent-child thing and, and children growing up is the one, one of the reliable things that can make me choke up. I, and I think I, I try to make this case in, in the book that um, – you know, I think these these should be considered as seriously as as many people consider, you know, graphic novels and comic books and, and comic strips. If a graphic novel is prose, you know, a novel, then these are kind of the graphic version of poetry. You know, it's something maybe like Good Night Moon is so simple or cool out of a haiku or something, yeah. you know. And, and you really don't like a, one of the most beloved children's books of the last 50 years, which is uh, The Giving Tree by Shel oh. Silverstein. Oh. 
That book is the most divisive book, I think, of sort of grand, you know, children's literature. I mean, it's yeah, it seems like it's a real love it or hate it. I mean, yeah, I just find it, you know, maudlin and and sort of punishing. And, and um, a book, however, that deals with with this, some of the issues of that uh, the Giving Tree does, death and loss, uh, beautifully, of course, is E.B. White's Charlotte's Web, which you talk about. This is a clip of E.B. White oh, yeah. reading Charlotte's Web. Charlotte, he moaned. Charlotte, my true friend. Come now, let's not make a scene, said the spider. Be quiet, Wilbur. Stop thrashing about. But I can't stand this, shouted Wilbur. I won't leave you here alone to die. If you're going to stay here, I shall stay too. Don't be ridiculous, said Charlotte. You can't stay here. Zuckerman and Lurvy and John Arable and the others will be back any minute now, and they'll shove you into that crate, and away you'll go. Besides, it wouldn't make any sense for you to stay. There would be no one to feed you. The fairgrounds will soon be empty and deserted. That's E.B. White reading his great uh, book, Charlotte's Web. So well written. It's so well, I mean, well, uh, E.B. White. But it's, you know, it's just so beautifully crafted. Like the first line is like, Pa, where are you going with that axe? There's the theme right there. You know, this is a book about life and death. You know, again, I think that's a good example, too, because I think he didn't set out to, like, I'm going to write a book about spider who saves a, a pig in the circle of life. You know, he, he was he was very, um, spent a lot of time on a farm. He was very, you know, involved kind of emotionally with his animals. He spent a lot of time in his barn. And I think some of the meaning of the story came out of what he was interested in as a person, you know, the way themes should emerge out of out of a great adult novel. Well, I think it's time to invite these grown-up children of ours into the studio to talk more about what it was they liked. Isaac and Zoe Handy, welcome. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having us. Kate and Lucy Anderson, welcome. Hello, Dad. Thank you. Hi. So, Isaac and Zoe, you're in college, both of you? Yes, I'm about to be a senior. I'm a freshman. Have you read this book? I have read his book. Okay. Um, all of it. I think Isaac has too a little bit. I've read parts of it. I have just, mostly just fact check, fact yeah. checking. Got to keep him in line. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, one of the books your dad writes about is Goodnight Moon by Margaret Weiss Brown. Good night, little house, and good night, mouse. Good night, comb, and good night, brush. Good night, nobody. Good night, mush. And good night to the old lady whispering hush. Good night, stars. Good night, air. Good night, noises everywhere. So, uh, Zoe and Isaac, do you remember being read this by your choking up uh, sentimental <laughs> father? Yeah, I do. I remember lots of Good Night Moon. We have this rocking chair in our room. I remember like my dad just like sitting there going back and forth. He definitely read it a lot. Uh, it probably wasn't Mine or my sister's favorite, but it was always his. So. You let the old man indulged him in his in his delight in reading it. Somebody had to. We always laughed at Goodnight Mush, though. Do you remember that? Cause, I do you remember Goodnight Mush? Yeah. But as adults now, or not quite adults, young adults, uh, d- does it? Do you get it more now than you did it before? Not really. I see how much it. <laughs> I, see, I see. I see how much it means to my dad and. That makes it mean more to me because I see how much of an effect it had on him, but I can't ever really say that I felt the same. So how about you, Kate and Lucy, now that you're adults? Uh, do you have any retrospective thoughts about Goodnight Moon? I mean, I, I think the illustrations are super beautiful, and I think as I've evolved into the adult I am and doing design and art in different ways, uh, I definitely appreciate that more. And how about you, Kate? 
I would agree with that. Uh, and I would also add on that I think I've become conscious of one of the reasons I liked it so much, which is our house took up a lot of the aesthetic of Goodnight Moon. We had your green office that we read in, and there was a lot of striped fabrics in our house. And I think retrospectively, I can see how those two things combine to make me kind of like it more than I might have. How interesting. Liked. I never thought of that. Um, so any any children's books that you've read as a kid uh, and that you've looked at since that, that you, you now have a different emotional resonance with? In the course of my dad writing this book, I just revisited The Runaway Bunny. And I think as a rising college senior with the angst of having to like really leave home and like um, all of the emotions and fears and anxieties that come with real adulthood being on the horizon. I think I was a little bit more moved by that book than I was maybe when I was a little kid. And, of course, The Runaway Bunny, also by Margaret Wise Brown. Uh, Its whole idea is is that this godlike parental presence will always be there and and bring you back safely no matter what happens. That means you're going to move back in. uh, (laughs) I hope not. Uh, Oh, no, no. I love my parents so much. They're so wonderful. Um, But I do know that they're always there for me and they will be there to support me no matter what. Bruce, your book obviously uh, couldn't include everybody's favorite books from childhood, like Babar the Elephant and, of course, Harry Potter. On the J.K. Rowling uh, front, did you decide not to include uh, Harry Potter because they've been written about so much already? Yeah, I think the more I got into it, I, and it was you know partly since this book is about, hey, adults can read these read these books. You know, I guess that's the elevator pitch. Harry Potter is already so widely read by adults, and you know the Times, you know Michiko Kakatani would be reviewing the new one. You know, there that, were articles at the time of the first ones about, oh, look, adults reading yeah. Harry Potter on the subway, and I got to admit, I. I sort of disapproved of that. Uh-huh. As much as I liked reading them myself, yeah. when I saw grown-ups reading them, I thought, really? <laughs> I'm curious for, for all four of you, who, if you two reread the, uh, the Harry Potter books as, as well, I'm curious, like, having read these books again and again, what, what, do, you, what do you see new in them as you, each time you read it? I mean, have you, have you discovered things as you've aged that, that are more interesting or about them? Uh, Ron and Hermione's sexual tension. <laughs> Palpable. <laughs> and Kate, you are now a true adult. Uh, you still read a lot of f- fantasy. I read fiction. a lot of the books that would make you cringe on the subway. Not, no, no. <laughs> but you, read a lot of, you read a lot of fantasy fiction. Books with maps in them. And, and and does that feel like oh, I'm I'm still holding on to some child part of myself to you, or just these are the books I like? No. Um, I mean, not consciously. We can examine that later. But I, I just like those In therapy? Books. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know your wife reads those books, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I just like them. I like adventure. I like fantasy. I like sci-fi. I, I kind of consider them my fun books, and then I usually alternate between my fun books and my proper books so that I'm getting a an equal intake. But those are the books that I just rip through in, like, two days and, and love them. Um, no, None of you young people are young enough to have been totally in the age of the iPad. Books were the thing. You you didn't really read on screens. What, what do you feel like if and when any of you have children? Are, are, are physical children's books going to be a thing you keep going in 2034 or whenever it is you have children? That'd be a little late, but... Uh... <laughs> and Lucy, when are you having children, by the way? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> um, uh, but yes, if and when I have children, I think um, 
I think physical books are important. Purely from a, like, I think a home without books is weird. Uh, and I, whether you read it once and put it on the shelf and never, you know, look at it again is fine. I just think that books are pretty key. And I do think there's something to be said about sort of the, the closure one gains and the sense of satisfaction from closing a book. I have done my work well. <laughs> uh, and Zoe and Isaac, you feel like you're going to, if and when you have children, that the books will still be part of it? I don't really feel like I'm going to have much of a choice. Like, I can just, like, imagine, like, the day, like, my children are born, the first thing Dad's going to do when he comes in the room is he's going to bring in a pile of, like, 20 books with, like, Good Night Moon and, like, all the Dr. Seuss's. Our our children are absolutely getting copies of Good Night Moon from my parents. For what it's worth, I actually do have children's books in my bookshelves in my apartment, so it's probably already a done deal. Well, and the next uh, version of this is we'll talk about stuffed animals, which is a whole other (laughs) adult thing that I have my doubts about. But anyway, um, uh, Zoe, Isaac, Kate, Lucy, and Bruce Handy, uh, thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank Thank you for having us. Thank you. Bruce Handy's book, Wild Things, The Joy of Reading Children's Literature as an Adult, is now out in paperback. Thanks to our readers, Alex Galifant and June Thomas. Scholar Swinson produced that segment. Coming up... I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Piggy. I'm going to fire you. Piggy, you are fired. You are fired. It's really funny when Kermit does it because he's a little frog and he's made out of green felt. But if it was a person, you'd want to call the police. The curious, enduring appeal of the Muppets. I'm in the next number. I will cancel. Can, cancel the next number. That's next on Studio 360. Were you surprised by what big news this was? I know I feel like like the breakup of the Soviet Union did not get as much coverage as your breakup did. Well, and rightly so. Yeah, yes, true. of course. I mean, look. That's Jimmy Kimmel talking, of course, to Miss Piggy and Kermit. It was 2015, and on the latest edition of the Muppets Show on ABC, the two characters had just broken up. Anything that happens to me is going to be front page news. <laughs> like the Donald Trump of love. You know? <laughs> Everything I do is huge! <laughs> and, uh, and therein lies uh, some of the, uh, <clears throat> the problem. But anyhow, anyhow. Uh-huh. I see. Uh, it was a strange midlife turn for Miss Piggy and Kermit. They'd broken up briefly in 1990, but nobody seems to remember that. Instead, these two characters being in a relationship, a fraught relationship, is what most fans think of as a very foundation of the Muppets, a canonical fact. So, no surprise, that 2015 reboot of the Muppets flopped, canceled after just a single season. It's anybody's guess what happens next with Kermit and Miss Piggy and with the rest of the Muppets. But what happens to them does matter. The characters that Jim Henson created are not just among the most recognizable in popular culture, they're also among the most loved. For this installment of Studio 360's American Icon series, Sally Herships has the story of the Muppets.
Michael Frith's apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan feels like backstage at The Muppet Show meets Santa's workshop. It is filled with the coolest knickknacks ever, like a Miss Piggy puppet on a shelf in the office. With little roses. Little roses, and then she's got a little blue floral dress on. But of course she has purple clothes. Oh yeah, well she's ever a lady. Beautiful blue eyes. Hello, darling. And open the glass-doored cabinet where your grandmother might keep her porcelain angel collection. Instead, there is Muppet-themed china. These were fun. These are little cups that I did for Sesame Street for each different character. Are those Happy Meal glasses? Frith isn't just a collector. This is his work. He worked with Jim Henson as an art director and creative director for years. Jim Henson is no longer with us. He died young, suddenly and tragically. Henson didn't create the Muppets by himself. He was more like a gentle shepherd, a really talented one. It took a team of writers, artists, and performers to create and put on the Muppet Show. Jim Henson would introduce me to various things and so forth and say something like, oh, and this is Michael Frith. He's kind of our, um, he's sort of, um, this is Michael Frith. (laughs) Frith knows the Muppets. He loves them. But back in 1969, when he found out they were going to be on Sesame Street, he was shocked. The creation of Sesame Street to me is one of the great absurdities ever because at that point, the Muppets were strictly adult entertainment. What they were doing was blowing each other up and biting each other's heads off and things like that. Very non-kids stuff. The Muppet Show characters didn't pop out of Henson's head fully formed. Some of the Muppets got their start as puppet stars of TV commercials back in the 1950s and 60s, and they could be kind of dark. Howdy, stranger. I hear you don't drink Wilkins coffee. Yeah, so what? Now, are there any other strangers in town? If you didn't try Wilkins coffee, a floppy early version of Kermit would threaten to shoot you or trample you with wild horses. Cookie Monster was originally created for General Foods, and Rolf the dog became a pitchman for Purina. Henson worked his puppets. They made the rounds of variety shows like B-list actors trying to break into Hollywood. They did guest appearances on Ed Sullivan, The Tonight Show with Steve Allen and Jimmy Dean. And of course, nobody Ralph. Like Kermit the Frog, Henson was born in Leland, Mississippi. And both Henson and Kermit were quiet and understated. After all, it was Henson that skillfully brought a piece of green felt and some ping-pong balls as eyes to life. Henson voiced Kermit and operated him. Barbara Miller is curator of the Jim Henson exhibit at the Museum of the Moving Image. We're standing in the section where commercials he made her playing, looped on TV monitors. Well, it may be all right for you, Baskerville, but I like Purina dog chow. But asparagus is nourishing. It's got vitamins. Miller says it all started when he was a kid in the 40s and saw TV at a friend's house. Well, if you didn't like me the first week, why did you come back? My doctor told me to go where it's quiet. (laughs) He saw variety shows and their front men like Milton Berle and Sid Caesar. He was entranced. And it's not like he was like, I'm going to be a star or I'm going to be a director. He wanted in. He just wanted in. But he didn't want into puppets. What Jim Henson wanted was to work in television. So later, when he was in high school and a local CBS affiliate announced audition for Kid Puppeteers, he tried out. If it took puppets to get on TV, fine. A couple years later, he had his own puppet show, Sam and Friends. It aired on a local NBC affiliate, WRC-TV, in Washington, D.C. Henson was still in college. 
Brian J. Jones is Henson's biographer. The reason Jim was so successful so quickly was because both Jim and television didn't know what the rules were yet. Henson and TV grew up together. At that point in the 1950s, they were both pretty young. Most puppeteers at the time would plunk down their puppet theaters and point the cameras at it, like a Punch and Judy show. You'd see a little stage with a curtain and a puppeteer hovering nearby. But Henson hid the puppeteers. Instead, he filled the TV's frame with only the puppets. He even put monitors around the set so that actors could see exactly how it would look on television. And the strategy was successful, but not enough. What Henson wanted was a half-hour variety show of his own, and no one would give it to him. Nobody really thought puppets could stand on their own for a half an hour on TV. They knew they were fine for two-minute bites on Sesame Street or on the Ed Sullivan Show. Uh, but a half hour on their own, this was, really, this was really, you know, something controversial and groundbreaking. John Stone, a producer who was helping to launch Sesame Street, had worked with Henson in the past and wanted him and his puppets on board. When the show debuted, it was a hit. Ernie and Bert, Big Bird and Kermit became puppet stars. But Sesame Street was a kid's show. So Henson, who'd made all those dark, violent commercials, was now given a new label, Children's Puppeteer. Not one he wanted to be stuck with. Jim is constantly in motion throughout the early 70s, pitching to the networks, pitching to ABC. You know, the Muppets can work in a half-hour variety show. From the same creative minds that brought you Ralph of the Jimmy Dean show. And he finds Michael Eisner, who believes in that, and gives him, you know, gives him a shot to do a pilot, which he does. Small children will love the cute, cuddly characters. Young people will love the fresh and innovative comedy. College kids and intellectual eggheads will love the underlying symbolism of But the pilot doesn't do very well. So he gets to do another pilot for ABC, uh, which also doesn't do very well. But one producer did say yes to the Muppets. He was 30 years old, a former Laugh-In writer by the name of Lorne Michaels. And he was producing a new show. Live from New York, it's Saturday night! Henson had his chance. He would create all new characters no one would mistake for his characters on Sesame Street. And he did it. Come with us now, from the bubbling tarpets to the sulfurous wasteland, from the rotting forest to the stagnant mudflats, to the land of Gorch. To tell you the truth, at 16, I didn't really realize that they were bombing. Lisa Henson is one of Jim's five kids. Scrat! Where's Scrat? There's glitches in my milk. I had to milk the damn gork on myself. <laughs> I didn't know. Later on, it was more clear to me. Where's Grant? I don't know where he is. I've been looking for him all morning. The you SNL writers didn't want to give away their best material to a bunch of puppets. Even John Belushi, who was nice to the performers, called them the mucking puppets. Nothing was happening until Lord Lou Grade, a British producer and media mogul, came into the picture. Brian J. Jones again. I think part of it is because Lou Grade and Jim were sort of, they were a generation apart almost, but they were sort of cut from the same cloth. Like, like Grade had come out of the UK version of vaudeville. Like he was, he was, he was famous for like jumping up on an on a oval-shaped table and doing the Charleston. Grade understood what an audience was seeing, just like Henson. No American network had wanted to touch it, but he gave the Muppet Show a green light. So the show was filmed entirely in England. It's time to play the music. It's time to light the light. It's time to meet the Muppets on the Muppet Show tonight. 
finally, Henson had his half-hour variety show. It's time to get things started on the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, It was a hit. But The Muppets wasn't just a show. It was a show within a show. Kermit, a stage manager, trying to get the whole crazy whirlwind zoo on stage. Miss Piggy, the star, the diva. The Muppet Show was the archetype of a stage performance, and audiences loved it. Uh, Fuzzy, what are you doing with this typewriter on my table? Kermit, I am writing the script for this week's show. But what makes you think the show needs a script? Oh, come on. Come on. Every show has a script. Yeah. Well, I think they're timeless characters. Mary Valentis teaches English at the State University of New York at Albany. They go back to ancient Greece in the Seder plays. Uh, they, they are exemplified in um, Shakespeare's comedies. We're thinking the Taming of the Shrew. Um, we get into uh, Moliere's um, French farce. And, and then move up into um, showbiz couples. Kermit, the straight man, and Miss Piggy, the diva. Valenta says it is a classic pairing, a couple where one character is very flamboyant and plays off the other. Uh, well. yeah, you meant that I couldn't follow her. Hmm. Well, Piggy, sometimes the truth hurts. Hurt? I'll show you hurt. Hurt! <laughs> And that happens in some of the Greek comedies, especially in something like uh, Lysistrata. The show even had a comedian who looks like he just walked off stage somewhere in the borscht belt. He's got a pink and white polka-dotted bow tie and a pot belly, except he's a bear. Hey, we were so poor, I was born at home. After my mother saw me, she went to the hospital. The show was self-conscious, and it had a sense of irony. It built in its own critics. Two grumpy old puppet men in suits, sitting up in a balcony, ready to pan everything. You think this show constitutes cruelty to animals? Not unless they're watching it. (laughs) Henson became a celebrity. And not like a Mr. Rogers or a Captain Kangaroo. He was more like a rock star, but with puppets. The TV show was so successful, it spawned feature films and made Henson even more well-known. J. Jones says he wasn't just rich, he was also charismatic, which helped the show land big stars and helped its executive producer, David Laser, keep them happy. Women loved him. Men adored him. And there was something about Jim that people sought his acceptance, his encouragement. Anything you can be, I can be greater. Sooner or later, I'm greater than you. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I There's am. a great story where Eth- Ethel Merman, in fact, when she was on The Muppet Show, she's wearing this very uncomfortable dress with a lot of feathers on it. And David Laser went up to her at one point and said, you know, are you, do we need to give you a different outfit or something? And she goes, David, look, if Jim Henson wants me to wear a feather in my ass, I will wear a feather in my ass. You know, you talk to people that worked with Jim, you know, you, you might be excused for thinking it's a cult. That's Dave Goals. You might recognize him by another name, Gonzo. I wish I had a coat of silk. The color of the sky. Gonzo had been created as a background character for Christmas special and then tossed into a box. He was pulled out for The Muppet Show, and the writers came up with the idea that he would be kind of a loser. Shy, rebellious, and out of place. Look down on the sea, but most of all, I wish that I 
with someone else but me. That was exactly where I was. I was inexperienced. I had no background in show business whatsoever. And I suddenly found myself one of the stars of one of the most popular, I guess it was the most popular show in the world at the time. Goals was only in his 20s. Both he and Gonzo were young. And when a guest walked in one door, I usually walked out the other door because I just thought, I don't belong here. I'm supposed to be on the couch at my parents' house in Burbank. But one of Henson's biggest talents was his ability to spot talent and ideas. Goal says anyone, from a stagehand to the janitor, could make a suggestion, and Henson would always think about it. Forget open-plan offices. The Muppet Show was the ultimate collaborative workplace. We work in service of the best idea. So when we're shooting and anybody suggests something that sounds like it will work better, I'm going to do that. Goal says as he got older and wiser and went to therapy, Gonzo evolved and matured along with him. Eventually, Gonzo played Charles Dickens in The Muppet Christmas Carol. And that depth of character is an essential part of the show's magic. Matt Zoller cites is TV critic for New York Magazine. They're people. They're people. They're just people. You know, one of them's a frog, one of them's a pig. You know, I, I, I have no idea what Gonzo is. I don't think anybody does. But they're basically people. Site says the Muppets remind us of ourselves. Take the relationship at the show's heart between Kermit and Piggy. It's really, really a dysfunctional relationship. Why, why is that a good thing? Well, okay, for starters, let's be honest here. Miss Piggy's a handful. Miss Piggy is a handful. There's just no denying that Miss Piggy is about as high maintenance as it gets. And, and also, Miss Piggy is a pathological narcissist. She really is. Like, if I were going to diagnose her, that's probably where I would start. There's a scene from the Muppet movie from 1979 when Piggy and Kermit get kidnapped by a mad scientist. Then Miss Piggy's agent calls. Yeah, Marty, what do you got? She's like, yeah, 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 uh-huh, hmm. Commercial? How much? Mm-hmm. Take it. Piggy is so self-involved that even in the middle of a crisis, she is more focused on her career than on Kermit. What's coming into my mind right now is like, wow, they need to go to counseling, to like marriage counseling. <laughs> like in reality, if these were real people, this would be horrible. Like if Kermit was your friend and was like, man, I took her back again, yes. you'd be like, dude, I can't even <laughs> listen anymore, right? I would actually, if Kermit were my friend, I would set some limits. I would have to say like, look, Kermit, I love you, man, but... Either you need to break up with Miss Piggy or you need to never talk to me about your problems with her again. Those are your two choices. I can't have any of this grayscale. But if they were actual people that you knew rather than a frog and a pig, uh, it would be a nightmare. It would be an absolute nightmare. You wouldn't know which one of them to block first on your phone. Zoller site says things are funny as long as they don't happen to us. And even funnier if they're happening to a puppet a little piece of felt and fabric on someone else's hand. There's always that tension in in comedy between um, catharsis and terror. A rant, like a ranting, raving lunatic, like like you get when Kermit finally loses it and does that thing where he's screaming and waving his arms. I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Piggy. I'm going to fire you. Piggy, you are fired. You are fired. Piggy, you are fired. Fired. It's really funny when Kermit does it because he's a little frog and he's made out of green felt. But if it was a person, you'd want to call the police. I'm in the next number. I will cancel. Can, cancel the next number. Put on the snorers course instead. Snorers, snorers. So why is that wonderful to watch instead of, I don't know, boring? Because it's not us. It's not us. You know, you think about it. You think about, you know, uh, let's go back to this whole idea of... Um, Kermit and Miss Piggy in marriage counseling, which, God, why isn't there a whole television show about that? It's like there's a, 
a two-way mirror and we get to watch people in couples counseling working through their problems. But if it was us in that room, if we were Kermit or we were Miss Piggy, it would be miserable. It would be a miserable experience. Michael Alsay is a therapist in New York City. What we see is Piggy dominates Kermit a lot and her ego gets the best of her. And Kermit goes along with it. It's not easy being green. Having to spend each day the colored of the leaves. He's a really warm-hearted, soft-spoken, tender guy. And sometimes we all want to say to Kermit, kind of get a spine, no pun intended. Alsay says one reason we love watching is because we can all relate to Kermit and Piggy. They represent the different sides of our own personalities that we're all trying to balance. Feminine versus masculine, strength versus vulnerability. But with one key difference that was a big deal in the 70s when the show was first produced. What was What's so wonderful about the Muppets is that they flipped the usual script. So Piggy represents the yang, which usually was the traditional masculine, and Kermit represents the yin, which is the traditional feminine. So that I think also it's, it was a healthy message for women to see they can have it all with that. She can wear her gloves yeah. and her pearls. And be a badass. Except in 2015, ABC tried to reboot The Muppet Show. And in that version, Piggy was too much for Kermit. Piggy, when we're out together, couldn't you just be my girlfriend instead of being, you know, Miss Piggy? Oh, please, do we have to have this argument again? Can't we just skip to the part where you admit you were wrong and buy me a bracelet? Piggy, I... I can't do this anymore. What are you saying? You want to break up? It was like we just did. The show ran for one season. Then the network pulled the plug. Unlike with the recent Muppet movies, fans did not respond well. So only one month after his breakup with Miss Piggy, Kermit the Frog has a new girlfriend and people are pissed. Uh, her name is Denise, and Muppet fans aren't upset that Kermit has found new love, but they're mainly upset at what Denise looks like. She is younger and skinnier than Miss Piggy. To fans, Kermit and Piggy feel real, like real friends or family. And in the new show, the Muppets didn't behave the way the Muppets they know would have. The original Muppet Show is where a lot of fans first got to know the characters. It was like a golden age for the Muppets, where they came into their own. And to take it on and to get it wrong felt especially off-putting. Fans felt betrayed. Muppets creative director Michael Frith again. The best single lesson I got in, in uh, storytelling was from Ted Geisel. Not only did Frith work with Jim Henson, but he also worked with Dr. Seuss. He once said to me, um, you can create any world you want. It can be as fantastic as you want it to be. But once you've created that world, you have to be true to its rules. Frith says Frank Oz, who played Miss Piggy, developed detailed backstories for each character. He once described Piggy to me as having uh, uh, come from a litter of, of 17 pigs, piglets, but her mother only had 16 nipples. And if you don't know that about her, I don't know that you can really express who she is. Frith says he hopes whoever is doing those characters now, in a movie or new TV show, is going to the same kinds of lengths and depths and deep thinking. Not simply, and I don't want to put any of these people down because they're terrific, but not how can I best imitate Frank or Jim or Jerry or, you know, whomever, 
but how can this character truly live? Because that's what makes the Muppets truly magical. The Muppets wouldn't have existed without Jim Henson. So the challenge for the past two decades has been, how do they live on without him? Do the Muppets stay true to Henson's original vision or evolve now that he's gone? Disney owns the Muppets now. Ironically, the idea of Muppet viability was something Jim Henson thought about when he was still alive. It's hard to say how much, how long they'll live. I, I think this is something that we're waiting to see from the audience. That's Henson in the 1984 documentary Henson's Place, six years before he died suddenly and unexpectedly from complications of pneumonia. He was only 53. If the audience wants these characters to continue to live, they, they will. And if the audience gets tired of them, they'll probably go away. I think it all, always comes back to Jim. He had a philosophy that drove him, and he didn't talk about it much, but it was, it was sort of about um, there's enough in this world for everyone. We should be generous and share. Um, we should celebrate diversity. And he created his company in that model. And it's a great model for the world. I mean, the world could use more of that, more shared experience. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? And what's on the other side? Elizabeth Hyde Stevens teaches classes on Jim Henson at the Muppets at Boston University. She says in order to get to the Muppet magic, you need a certain amount of practicality. She thinks that's a possible interpretation of what the famous song, The Rainbow Connection, is all about. Have you been half asleep and have you heard voices? I've heard them calling my name. sort of about this, you know, this magic that they're supposed to make happen. And then the chorus is, someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers. Sometimes I think maybe the rainbow connection is between, you know, your, your dreams and reality and, and being able to actually make it happen. You can see a video of Michael Frith in his amazing New York apartment slash Muppets shrine on our website, studio360.org. The producer of that story, Sally Herships, is a regular contributor to Marketplace and the director of the radio program at the Columbia University School of Journalism. Our American Icon series is made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Coming up... We don't want children to get hurt. Playground equipment is safer than ever. But on the other hand, I think now we've gone too far and children aren't getting hurt, but they're also not being challenged, and then they don't want to go play. How lawyers and bureaucrats ruined fun in America. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. 
This hour, we are talking about excellent things creative people make that expand our minds when we're kids, and which we keep falling in love with all over again as adults. So far, we've looked at typically indoor pursuits, watching television and reading. Now we're taking it outside to examine another staple of kid culture, the playground. I am approaching the wall of blocks to climb up it to get to the slide. There's a bunch of children. Wow, it's so long! This person pointing out the children is Paul, who is giving us a a first-hand account of what it's like to go down a 57-foot-long slide, the longest in New York City. I'm placing my cardboard on the slide. I'm getting on the slide. And I'm going. That's all from Paul's slide. You probably guessed that Paul is not a radio professional. He's 11 years old. His mother is Alexandra Lang. She is an architecture and design critic and author of the terrific new book, The Design of Childhood. And since we wanted to talk about playgrounds, Alexandra and I got together one fine day this summer at one of New York's newest playgrounds on Governor's Island in the harbor. So, Alexandra, um, when did playgrounds uh, show up? When we kind of invented the idea of childhood? Well, yes, there, there's a lot of debate about when, mo- let's say, modern childhood was invented. But in terms of... 1883, okay. <laughs> in terms of playgrounds, they first came um, to Boston in the 1880s. Some of the, the women who ran settlement houses in Boston saw what were called sand gardens in Germany, um, which were basically like a vacant lot filled with sand um, that would be installed in an urban setting, often in the summer when kids were out of school and needed something to do. So she brought this idea to Boston and put a sand garden in, in, in a poor neighborhood, um, and it was a big hit. And so the settlement houses began to see that as part of their agenda, you know, helping immigrant families, they also needed to help the children and give them a place to be, a place to play that wasn't the streets. Um, and so the sand gardens then in the early part of the 20th century um, led to public parks that had playgrounds with actual equipment, you know, often metal equipment. Some of those parks um, would have a park house. They would have exercise classes. There was really a whole charity movement towards play um, and getting children um, active in cities as a way of often of keeping them from um I don't know, dirty tricks. <laughs> well, right, and, and there, if, if your whole thing is playgrounds of a certain design sort, you fall into the problem that, that urban renewal people fell into in the 50s and 60s that Jane Jacobs had to say, wait, stop, it's okay as it is. Don't tear it all down and make it a big tower. Stickball is good. Yes, yeah, exactly. And actually it was funny. So, I mean, the, the playgrounds that 
um, a lot of people, I would say, especially baby boomers, probably grew up with had metal structures over asphalt. And, you know, you really very rarely see those anymore. But I went up to Van Cortlandt Park to the cloisters with my family recently, and we ran across one of those climbing structures that was probably put in by Robert Moses in the 1940s, just a metal three-dimensional grid. Jungle gym. Yes, a jungle gym, classic jungle gym. Um, and of course my kids went nuts for it and I took a picture and posted it on Twitter and I got like 200 responses because there's an amazing sort of waves of nostalgia when people see childhood objects and you really don't like I mean that jungle gym should be in a museum like it is an important piece of design Um, and there isn't so much wrong with it. I mean, I, I know, like, I know because I've done this reading why they got rid of jungle gyms over asphalt. But on the other hand... Because, what, were, kids knocked their heads on against um, the bar and... Yeah, in the early 1980s, they put in a series of safety regulations in, in response to a set of lawsuits for, among other things, kids falling off the top of slides sideways. And they really focused on the distance of falls because that was where kids broke their arms or, you know, in more terrible cases, broke their skulls. So that's why you almost never see play equipment now that's not over wood chips, sand, um, or those squishy tiles that we have on most of the New York City playgrounds. And that's also why um, most climbing structures don't go straight up and down. Like from the top of one of those jungle gyms, you could fall straight down for six or seven feet. And if you look at climbing structures today, Day, um, they're you know they're designed so that if you fall you're you're likely to hit something else on the way down that you can grab onto so you don't have that kind of straight shot down um, so I mean these are smart things like we don't want children to get hurt yes. but on the other hand I think now we've gone too far and children aren't getting hurt but they're also not being challenged and then they don't want to go play right and as a mother do you ever I mean, you get, of course, why parents, you know, don't want their kids to break their arms or worse. Yes. But are you ever, like, as you have become an ideologue for risk, are you ever torn? Um, Yeah, of course. I mean, it's hard to let your kids go. You, You want them to be independent. You want them to have their own minds. But then you see them, you know, up you know, on a big rock in Van Cortlandt Park, and you think, you know, is she going to fall? Like, does she know what she's doing? Um, And that's hard. But if you don't let your child take that risk, they don't get the reward of the satisfaction of getting up that rock. Couldn't agree with you more. Um, uh, One sees some playgrounds, contemporary playgrounds, where, you know, instead of just a jungle gym, it's a rocket ship, or it's instead of a slide, it's a dinosaur. Yeah. Uh, That's, uh, which always seems a little cheesy to me. Uh, uh, Those are controversial, right? Um, yes. In, the, in your fancy design world. Yes, I, I agree. It's cheesy. No, it's just it's just not necessary. I mean, kids, it's actually, it, you know, it goes back to, you know, kind of cardboard box play even. Like, why, why tell a kid, like, what the box is? Why tell a kid what the climbing structure is? Let them decide what it's going to be that day. And if you put little wings and a point on it and say it's a rocket ship, then, I mean, they can ignore it, but they may only feel that they can play a space game in that piece of climbing equipment. Equipment and who needs that? I mean, that in a way seems to me to be kind of subscribing to some adult idea um, about like what kid things look like. And kids are fine with abstraction, like the, their imagination fills in the blanks. Yeah. Uh, you in the book create this typology of the sort of forces at play in playground design. 
and the abstractionists being one of them. So the abstractionists are people like Osamu Noguchi, the sculptor, who um, it turns out spent about 60 years of his art career trying to build a playground that kind of, again, lo- you know, looks like abstract sculpture. As his furniture and his lighting do too. Yes, yes. So he started designing them in the 1930s and they were quite influential because they were um, exhibited at MoMA. Um, they were in all the magazines. Um, a lot of um, important people like Thomas Hess, who was the editor of Art in America at the time, backed them. But he couldn't get one built in New York. He tried and tried. Um, there's one Noguchi playground in Piedmont Park in Atlanta. Um, and I went on a journey to Sapporo in the north of Japan to see his last work, which was the one place that a really giant Noguchi playground was made. And that has, it has pyramids, um, it has slides that look like mountains, all of these things that are just really aesthetically beautiful, but are also challenging play experiences. I mean, it was, honestly, it was a bit tragic that I couldn't bring my children with me because of school and expense, but I played on all the play equipment by myself in Japan and it was pretty awesome. Alexandra Lang's new book, The Design of Childhood, is out now. Zoe Saunders and Tommy Bazarian produced that story. And that is it for this episode. But before we go, there's a very good new movie out called Can You Ever Forgive Me? It stars Melissa McCarthy as Lee Israel, a not very successful writer, a real person who found a new midlife career as a literary con artist. This uh, one line here was particularly clever, don't you think? It's wonderful. I love his writing. And Dorothy Parker as well. Caustic wit, you know? Caustic wit is my religion. The movie made me want to revisit my conversation with the real Lee Israel. She died in 2014. I talked to her in 2008. And you can listen to that conversation from our podcast feed, wherever you get podcasts. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer... Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. Thanks and good morning or good afternoon or good night stars, good night air, good night noises everywhere. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. Let's go home, Debbie. The Searchers is widely considered to be one of the greatest films ever made. But I took my wife to see this movie, and all she could say was, this is the most racist movie I've ever seen. I don't know how you could watch this film. John Ford's problematic masterpiece, The Searchers, a new installment in our American Icon series next time on Studio 360.